Just you just reminded me. I'm, I'm doing a, a random wrestling review this week, and they asked me to review Over the Limit 2012 by WWE. And it's got the worst commentary team you could possibly imagine Jerry Lawler, Michael Cole, and Booker T. And at one point, sorry? At least one of those people's probably entertaining to listen to. Well, at one point, Booker T goes, he's going to move the furniture around on him. And Cole goes, what do you mean? It's like, he's going to throw him into the furniture so it moves around, Michael. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God. What is wrong with you people? Fucking yes. yes, Michael. Yes. It wasn't a bad card overall, but it did have CM Punk versus Daniel Bryan on it. So that's going to improve the situation greatly. <laughs> yeah. Right then, shall we have a crack? Where are we? Oh, we have a course tired recording already. Let's get going. Hello, and welcome to the Trippany Show. My name's James Trippy. This is my show, and we are back with Beginner's Guide to Japanese Wrestling and a show from 2005 and a company we haven't looked at for historically in a while. We look at plenty of their modern stuff, and in fact, a lot of these names will be very familiar to you. We're going to look at Noah and their supercar Destiny, which came from the Tokyo Dome on the 17th of July, 2005, and features some of the biggest names in wrestling at the time, who, funnily enough, are some of the biggest names in wrestling right now. To join me on this momentous journey is Mr. John Deansdale of Steel Chair Wrestling Magazine. How are you, sir? I'm pretty good. I have vanquished the evil force of John Death Dam, who invented <laughs> so... Yeah. Yeah. Sorry about that. Sorry. Sorry. Sorry about that. Yeah. I was, if those of you who follow us on Twitter will realize that I misspelled John's Twitter handle and didn't realize until I posted it. Sorry. Any. Mm. Well, at least you noticed. Some people wouldn't notice. Um. <laughs> anyway. Uh. Yeah. Well, last time we talked about looks at Noah, me and Alex looked at Noah in their early years, um, looking at the first two years of their existence, the kind of development of Yonakiyama turning heel, raising Kenta Kabashi up to be the ace of the company, um, still trying to keep him sour, then Teiyu as the backup plan should things go wrong, rising stars like Ogawa, uh, lots of different things going on in the company. And it was a company that was... You know, when I read about it at the time, it felt like Noah was going to be a big deal. But when you look back at it and watching the crowds they were in front of and the stadiums they were filling, they weren't that big a deal in comparison to AJPW. Now, the content of the Noah shows was better more than what was on the AJPW shows, don't get me wrong. But they had a lot of help in AJPW as Keiji Muta came over, brought a load of fresh blood from New Japan Pro Wrestling mainly Satoshi Kojima, who would go on to be the ace of the company for quite a long while. And there was kind of a feel that all Japan had grown because they, as they had done before in the past, when they cut out the Deadwood during the first exodus back in uh, the early 1990s, it allowed Kabashi and Kawada and Misawa all to shine. And it kind of felt to start with like that was the thing that was happening. But then things began to creak when they didn't have enough main eventers and couldn't get the new guys over quick enough. And that's not to say that Noah were, were static during that time. They started to grow. They started to grow like a runaway train, all to the point that from their birth in 1999 to 2005, they were able to sell out the Tokyo Dome, which is kind of the zenith for all wrestling promotions. If you can do it once, then you are amazing. If you can do it on a regular basis, that's what you want to aim for. And only one company has sold out the New Japan Tokyo Dome, sorry, the, the Tokyo Dome, and that is New Japan Pro Wrestling on a regular basis. New Japan in the mid-90s would sell it out three or four times a year, whereas, obviously, as we all know now, they're lucky to get it three-quarters full for Wrestle Kingdom. Though that number, those numbers are improving a year on year. And will no doubt improve next year when COVID restrictions have probably been lifted almost completely. But this card was an intriguing mix of young stars on the rise from different organizations, as well as from NOAA. 
and established stars having green matches. In fact, the last three matches could clearly be called absolute um, dream matches. When you saw this card, John, what did you think of it? And what did you think of its place in history? I mean, it was like looking at a who's who of like current Noah talent, past Noah talent, legends, just looking at I was sort of like, holy shit, that's a lot of big names on one card. And obviously, knowing where certain people are now, it's intriguing to look at younger versions of themselves kicking ass. <laughs> For sure. In fact, the opening match um, kind of is the epitome of that. Uh, Masahashi Yagi Suwa Takashi Segura defeated Kasuke Nakajima, a man who... Looms large over pro wrestling. There were Mitsumoto Momota and Teyoshi Kikuchi, nine minutes and 32 seconds. Kikuchi was an all Japan stalwart for years and years. He was around in the latter days of Dynamite Kid. In fact, arguably, he was a bit of a Dynamite Kid clone. He was one of uh, the hero, Dynamite was one of his heroes when he was younger, kind of grew into a heavyweight role. Um, and you know, Takeshi Segura is still one of the main guys in Noah Pro Wrestling today. Um, and this was really the thing that stood out for me is the fact that Nakajima looks like a star and they are clearly trying to build him as a star. He must have been around about 18 or 19 at this point, but he already has everything going for him. In fact, he was 17 years old at this point. He's 34 now. He's an 18-year pro. He was only one or two years in the business, you know, two years into the business at this particular point, but he already has all the makings of someone who's going to be very, very special. What's your thoughts on this opening match, John? Yeah, this was explosive as hell. I mean, if you wanted to kick a show off with a bang, you put one of the best dressers in the world at the moment, who was a 17-year-old dynamo then. You've got Takashi Sagira, one of the biggest bruisers in the match. Who look terrifying. <laughs> and just, yeah, you had a bunch of people beating the shit out of each other. It was classic Noah. It was. It was Noah. like, it was King's Road style. Nakajima was not a Noah Dojo guy. He was trained by um, Kenseiki Sasaki, as he is his adopted son. And it shows. <laughs> In fact, the one thing that, that really annoyed me more than anything about the Noah show at, um, uh, at New Year's on Boxing Day was the fact that Nakajima put away Keno with a Northern Lights bomb. A Northern Lights bomb. The signature maneuver of his adopted parents, uh, Akira Hokuto and Kensuke Sasaki. And the Noah commentary team went, ah, oh, it's an Emerald Flotion. No. <laughs> <laughs> Do you not see the significant? No, do you know nothing? But yes. Do you um, see? Do you not see the dragon? Do you see? It's what anyway. my mind whenever someone says that. <laughs> <laughs> they did not see, nor did they see the point. Anyway, but yeah, perfectly good kind of opening match you would expect on a big car with some young stars trying to make a name and some big names moving things forward. Speaking of big names all round, Mohamed Yone and Takeshi Murashima defeated Go Shiyazaki and Taman Honda. Now, Murashima was already the rising star of Noah. In fact, at this point, he was ooh, five years into the business, was beginning to establish himself as a main eventer. Uh, Go Shiyazaki was, let's see, he was, he was the same, yeah, 2004, two years into the business, about the same time as Nakajima. Taman Honda was obviously a, a long, term star for all japan as well as for noah and was incredibly popular um and then muhammad yone is friggin' muhammad yone <laughs> he did he's still yeah he was well yone that's the daft thing because yone started off as a dead serious shooter um the earliest matches i saw him in was uh let's see i'm just trying to just looking back at his careers because he was wrestling for um to start with, he was wrestling for Battle Arts. Um, and he started off with pro wrestling Fujiwara Gumi. So, you know, no more shootery shootiness than PWFG. And then he started wrestling for Battle Arts when he started growing out the afro. And me and Dara 
uh, looks at one of his Hurley matches in Battle Arts. And I thought it was Battle Arts versus Asaka Pro. And you would have thought, Marmagione is an Asaka Pro guy. No, 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 no. He was Battle Arts. He just had an afro and was a bit funky. But it wasn't until he reached Noah, he didn't get to his full funkiness, if you will. He wasn't exactly uh, funky here, though. He was pretty businesslike. I mean, it was very sort of still semi-shooterish, though he did have the coolest variation of the Doomsday device I've seen in quite some time. <laughs> when in doubt, throw yeah. a spin kick into it. That was yeah, pretty awesome. Uh, Takeshi Morishima would go on to be one of the stars of Noah for quite some time. Um, unfortunately, his career ended kind of sadly, really. Um, he didn't really know how to cope with life outside of wrestling, really. Once he'd retired the first time, he kind of wasn't interested, uh, but still acted like he was a superstar wrestler, which is no way to go about your life, unfortunately. Um, hopefully, I hope he gets the help he needs and turns himself around. He did come back to Noah a couple of years ago, but clearly couldn't cope with the situation and what was going on. Um, but then, yeah, Goshi Yuzaki again looked like a superstar in this match. He had all the presence and everything going for him. I remember him being a red-hot prospect at this point because one long after this, he came to the UK for... Um, there was a tournament in Liverpool that Alex Shane organised, and which was won by Nigel McGuinness. Um, and it had everybody on it. Like it had um, Nigel McInnes, who was super hot at the time. It had who else was the uh, El Generico? I think Steen was on that show. Like all of the the top indie talent from about twelve years ago, who were now the big names in pro wrestling, uh, were on that show, and he was one of them. You know, he was, and he was a superstar as well. He looked amazing. Um, and you know, Tamon Honda's Tamon Honda, isn't he? He's a reliable old goat who does the job well. Any further thoughts? No, I genuinely think you summed everything up nicely. Just, but yeah, again, this is like perfect opening fodder because it's like really hard hitting, really energetic, and people are just having a blast kicking the shit out of each other. <laughs> Next up, we had Dark Agents. Aki Sato, Kishin Kobata, Maso Inoue, along with, hey, Shiro Koshinaka. That's two Shiro Koshinaka matches reviewed in the space of two weeks. And they fact, when you sent me the cage match for this, I misread that as Dark Angels. And I was just like, what the fuck is Aki <laughs> Saito doing in a, a bloody group called the Dark Angels? <laughs> Isn't that a porn company name? Anyway. <laughs> Akira Teo, Harukugi Aigen. Sorry? To Google. To Google, okay. Are you going to go Google and find out if it's a porn company name? You do that. That's uh, Akira... Angel, not Dark. Oh, uh, all right then, okay. Anyway, Thank moving you. on. Akira... <laughs> uh, yes. Akira Teo, Harukugi Aigen, Jun Izumuda, and Taku Masano had a very sound match. It was really good. Aki Sato then obviously not having old man strength that he does now because he's now old. Um, Mark Pickering, thank you for that moment of comedy genius. Um, uh, he doesn't have the old man strength. He just had middle-aged man strength at this particular point in his career and still looked quite strong. He was the leader of Dark Ages. So it was him that grabbed the mark at the end of the match anyway, so I'm guessing it was him. Akira Tei was kind of Brought himself down a peg or two, but he was president of the company and was doing a lot of backstage management at the time. So you don't expect him to take a run at the GHC Heavyweight Championship every five minutes. But this was perfectly good for what it was. Did anything stand out to you, John? Uh, yeah, Haruka Eigen's bright pink speedos. Oh, like, yes. That was like the biggest sort of attention grabbing thing in this match, other than Saito being a bruiser. It's just. Yeah, this was kind of just a match. It was big Noah guys doing big Noah things, and that's kind of all I can sum it up as. <laughs> you sort of yeah, look at it like, this is Noah heavyweight, sort of doing slightly slower Noah heavyweight things with just multicoloured attire versus all black dark agents. 
very similar to what happens now, except the guys who were in the dark age and stuff are now wearing bright colored clothes and doing disco dancing. Yeah. I guess it's weird how things come full circle. <laughs> uh, I swear one on. person in this tag match was definitely trying to do their best giant barber impersonation. Yeah, I think there was a lot of that going on because there were some AJPW people kicking around later on in the show and they were trying to make a point, I would think. It's like he had the bright red trunks. He kept pushing people into the corner and trying to do the brain chop and just failing miserably every time. It looked like he was just slapping him in the head. And it's just <laughs> not like, if you're going to do Baba, at least do Baba right. Yeah, you kind of really have to, don't you? If you're going well, to try go. the brain chop, it has to look like you've just hit them with a fucking brick. Like <laughs> They have to be selling like death, not just, ow, my little brother hit me in the head. And even giant haystacks sold them chops to the head back in the day. There was, <laughs> in Dynamite Kids book, there's a story about um, giant haystacks got um, booked for all Japan. And um, he gets there, and um, he said, what do I do? He said, hit him hard. I said, what do you mean? It's Japan. You know, get on with it. He's like, oh, all right then. So he knocks um, seven bells of shit out of this poor young boy. Um, turns out, young boy in question had family relationships with uh, certain gentlemen with tattoos. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, A-Stack's not happy. But he said he was miserable for weeks on end on this tour. And eventually he was, like, in a tag match with Giant Baba on the last night. And Baba threw a chop and Haystacks fell down. And he said, finally, he gets it. <laughs> <laughs> he said, oh, what do I have to do? <laughs> so they said, that's it. And he was a lot happier after that because he'd figured it out. <laughs> Oh, yeah, there you go. Sometimes all you have to do is fall down. Depends on the guy you're with. Right, where was we? Let's move on. The show actually does go a, a fair old clip. All of these matches are five, nine, ten to ten minutes long. There's nothing that's going to stretch your imagination. The heavy stuff's coming up. So there's plenty of white fodder and some fun stuff. And Noah trying to do different things as a company. And nothing more says that than the next match, which featured Mushiking Derry against Black Mask. Now, Michigan Derry is junior heavyweight great Katora Suzuki before he became a junior heavyweight great. And Black Mask was another junior heavyweight great called Ricky Marvin, who um, obviously had greater fame as friggin' Ricky Marvin. Uh, but this was uh, an anime character that had been brought to life through the character Mushiking Terry to give Noah a different slant on things, much in the same way as Jushin Thunder Liger and Tiger Mask have done for New Japan and for All Japan. They were trying to do something different with this. It didn't quite catch on, not helped by the fact that, you know, uh, in a match with Kenta, Kenta did his usual Kenta thing and made fun of the cartoon character, which is perhaps not the best way of getting something over. <laughs> but there you go. He's Kenta. Um, so, yeah, I'm not, it, it did okay. And the kids did absolutely love this character, didn't they, John? Yeah, you can tell there was a lot of happy faces in that crowd. I mean, it does help that you put a decent wrestler behind the mask. It's like nothing would be worse than if you'd put an anime character into a match and it was just someone who barely knew the basics. Well, you see, that's, that's the thing. If you look at the great anime characters that have been transferred to uh, pro wrestling, Tiger Mask, Satoru Sayama, arguably one of the top five greatest junior heavyweights of all time. Justin Thunder Liger, who's, you know, Kids Yumada, the greatest junior heavyweight of all time. I don't think anyone's going to argue with that now. Um, they were really good. <laughs> like, like even when the last time New Japan did an anime match, it was um, Kota Ibushi as Tiger Mask W yeah. against oh. Rocky Romero's evil Tiger Mask. That's so like... Or was it AC? No, it was ACH. It was, I think. Uh, it was, oh, yeah, it was. Like, I'm, yeah, there was another character. Juice Robinson did one of the characters as well. It's like. On the you, early matches. Yeah. 
that was the benefit with this match as well. They had two great wrestlers making sure it was a dynamic match or else it would... Like, imagine if you just put, like, Akatoshi Saito <laughs> and bloody Haruka <laughs> Aigen as the two anime characters. It would just be a mess and nobody would buy that. That's it. You know, I, just, I mean, this, the, the other obvious examples are a Black Tiger, um, which is, you know, literally... And Misawa is Black Tiger's Tiger Mask 2 and, you know, the current Tiger Mask 4 are all great, all-time great junior heavyweights. But, you know, Mark Rocco was that good as Black Tiger. They needed Eddie Guerrero to replace him. <laughs> you know, that's that's how good Mark Rocco was. <laughs> you know, so, um, yes. But anyway, um, yeah, and it, it works. What it is, it works. Um does seem a little bit odd on a Noah show, but at least it was presented well. They did the right things at the right time with the right with the right stuff, didn't they? Yeah, though it did crack me up when I sort of tabbed out to the broadcast because it was an entrance segment, and then all of a sudden I come back and there's like what looks like your stereotypical science geek in Seto Kaiba gear <laughs> proclaiming that he's brought about an amazing character. I'm just like, what the fuck have I tuned into here? Is is there an outbreak <laughs> in the middle of this show? And I was like, oh, no, it's it's an anime match. Ah. It does seem yes. weird on a Noah show. It does. It's not the company you would think would do Noah, would do Noah, you know, would do cartoon stuff. Um, but they do, and they did. And it worked for what it was. It didn't last very long, but it was a good idea when they tried it. If and you, now... Sorry. It's always a good way to test out how people react with certain wrestlers. Because, like... They can go out there and do their moves under this sort of character guise, and then if the character goes down the crap about the moves are cool, you can just throw the wrestler out without the character and just be like, yeah, look, he can do all that cool shit the anime guy did, but he's not, you know, the anime guy. You are, you are literally booking Dallas in the 1980s. Like, the wrestlers made up their pay by going out again in a mask and a different set of tights. <laughs> in, including Mick Foley. <laughs> so it's like, it's like, Foley's been doing that for a long time now. Let's uh, you, you would think you would think, think so, but that that's one thing. But he was supposed to be somebody different entirely. So he would be like a main event tag team attraction with Gary Young and then just do job matches to get paid more. <laughs> Under a mask. That's it works. It, well, it's like, yeah, well, I have long hair, which is tucked up under the mask. I wrestle exactly the same way, and I have no ass. And everyone else on the roster has an ass, <laughs> as he put it. So, you know, I don't think it worked as well the way the way it was supposed to. Yeah, it's it's you know, protecting the business was like, you know, back in back in Dallas in the eighties, the tag team titles would change hands four times in a week with exactly the same match. <laughs> But there you go. Um, where was we? Uh, yes. Oh, yeah. It, the heavy stuff is about to start now, by the way. We are going to be reviewing some thick, historically important professional wrestling matches, um, which have actually major effects on the way professional wrestling works today. We are going to be opening the forbidden door, if you will, uh, or kicking it through in one case. So let's start, shall we? Kenta. That, yeah, that Kenta defeated Yoshinobu Kanemura. That, that Yoshinobu Kanemura in a 21, 20 minutes and 31 seconds of an ungodly professional wrestling match. This was the two biggest stars in the division trying to make their way in a card full of stars from another universe, and they just about stole the show. This was just professional wrestling of the highest order. They're both young then. They're not so young now, but they can both go a streak then. So now, so imagine what it was like then. Kanemaru in full-on championship form. Kenta in full-on championship form. Kenta takes the title. But this was a perfectly told wrestling story. You know, people talk about, oh, WWE's the best storytelling in wrestling. Nah, this was the type of wrestling you wanted to see in the early 2000s if you wanted to see storytelling. The story is this, Kanemaru is the best, Kenta wants to be the best, and how do you pick apart the best? 
you're patient and you wait and you wait and somebody makes a mistake and that's the story of the match. Top and bottom, it was absolutely fantastic. You survived being dropped on your head more times than I don't know what with deep impact. Oh, yeah. Kanemaru did drill, Kenta, in every place on the arena. There are probably still dents in the concrete floor of the Tokyo Dome from where Kanemaru put Kenta's head through the map. However, it was a well-told story. Oh, 100%. Like, this this is Wrestling Masterclass 101. Two great wrestlers trying to be the best, do everything in your power to either survive it and win, or survive it and die in the best way possible. Which is what they did. Yeah, this was just perfection. Granted, I am glad Kanemaru grew his hair out because we had looked at him with a shaved head. It just didn't work. No, it's, yeah, there's some people who can look mean with a shaved head. He's not one of them. He needs a bit of a quiff to get things going for him in the mean mistakes, I'm afraid. But yeah, this intriguingly, Kenta was. The heel, but very popular, and Kanemaru was a babyface, which we don't really think of Kanemaru as a babyface these days. I didn't really, get did that we? when I was watching this. I thought Kanemaru was just being his usual dickheaded self, hence why he kept drilling Kenta's head into the floor every chance he got. Yeah, I think he was probably the more popular on the kayfabe babyface side, if you see what I mean. If that if that makes sense. <laughs> Huh. But yeah, yeah, so I. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's funny enough. Um, out of the Noah's Great Exodus, by the way, of the Burning Exodus, we've already talked about two or three wrestlers on that because um, Kanemaru would eventually leave the company five years later to go to War Japan and then end up, go back to Noah and then end up in New Japan to find him on his current status. We are, we already talked about Katoru Suzuki in the previous match, Michigan Derry. He was also part of the Noah Exodus burning to World Japan Pro Wrestling as well. And uh, we've got somebody in the next match who we shall talk about next. I just wanted to say, though, about this particular match, it kind of is one of those style turners. Uh, a lot of the wrestlers that you see in the next couple of years kind of take that Kenta approach to wrestling and, and very much a Kanemura approach to wrestling as well, you know, looking at Daniel Bryan, or Bryan Danielson as we're back on with Bryan Danielson again and even CM Punk, obviously there's a massive influence on CM Punk uh, when it comes to finishes, but also the kick style as well it's, you know, there's a lot of transfer there into what would go into American wrestling, basically because Kenta would spend a lot of time in Ring of Honor um, so would Mirashima the word was starting to spread about Noah being an attractive place to go and get your wrestlers to come to you as well. WXW and FWA booked a lot of uh, Kabashi and Masawa matches in this time period as well. The company was growing internationally in live attendance as well as doing it through Japan and um, you know telling a bigger story. This is one of the reasons why this show is so historically important, as well as like the numbers it did um, and just the presence that it had. Um, let's move on to the GAHC Tag Team Championships, where your Tag Team Championships were defended by the champions, the heels, Minoru Suzuki, well, of course, he's going to be a heel, and Nayamichi Marafuji. There's a turn up for the books. And they defeated Yonakayama and a young man called Makoto Hashi in 24 minutes and 55 seconds. And really... Um, the ideal kind of tag team match. We already talked say, earlier about like. Everyone's excited about that one. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot to put it on. I'm going to put it on on no vibe and non vibration. There you go. Silent. Apologies. There we are. Are we still recording? Yes. Um, yeah. Really, we talked about the ideal junior heavyweight match. This is the ideal Japanese tag team match. It was there was a big star feel about it because Suzuki, Marafuji, Akiyama, and Ashi were all introduced singularly it had a big feel about it it felt really important they built up a big angle between suzuki and hashi who'd been injured by suzuki in the past um hashi was a wrestler that who ended up having less of a career than he should have done really stop me if you've read this one before but a guy who used the top rope headbutt as a finisher having neck trouble and having to retire early 
Hmm. Anyway, uh, yes. He... We can't make the other comparison because as far as we know. Yeah. There you go. But uh, he did have neck trouble, and at least he sensibly retired early and went on to do other things with his life, which is the right thing to do. Um, but Akiyama is one of the greatest tag team... Well, I'd argue he's the greatest tag team wrestler of all time, along with Ian Anderson. They're just two, two singular tag team wrestlers who understand how tag team wrestling is supposed to be done and do it well. Akiyama and Anderson are your guys. They are the best. And... Hashi was just just didn't really need to do an awful lot as the junior member of this matchup. The other three would take him all the way to perfection, and that's what they did. Suzuki and Marafuji are just absolutely excellent, and you wouldn't think it would work. This junior heavyweight, beefed up junior heavyweight aerialist, and the stone cold shooter, but by God, they're good together, aren't they, John? I mean, if you think about it, both of them can kill people with their chosen style like marifuji <laughs> is one of the deadliest kickers on the bloody planet <laughs> oh he's got this, he's got the stiffest chops as well like he will he will end you physically and suzuki will just choke you out and laugh then probably drop you on the pile <laughs> driver whilst you're still unconscious because your existence means nothing to him what did uh, you think of the match itself though oh this was my favorite match on the card like, I was hooked on this. Like, I was completely hooked on this. Like, I have all the respect in the world for Yonakiyama. I've loved his DDT work. I've loved watching, like, old Noah matches of his. And this is just a prime example of, again, him commanding a match and making it alongside Suzuki and making it completely work from start to finish. And obviously, Hashi and Marafuji are no slouches either. They've all got their roles to play, and it all just sort of works. <laughs> it just works. I know, I like the bits as well where it's like um, Hashi's clearly not in his corner and tags in. And the referee says, No, you can't tag in now. Go back. <laughs> <laughs> because they, they did everything properly, you know. Like modern New Japan tag wrestling, the referee's kind of there to count three, and he lets things fly. But back then, they actually enforced the rules. And for there is a lot to be said for the old adage: if you don't have rules, how are you supposed to break them? And I kind of like this is just one of those things that was just like perfectly paced, really well done, and just sorted. And I liked it a lot. It was really, really cool. And you know, Suzuki was absolutely at his peak. Marafuji was just getting to his peak. Akiyama was on song, back as a babyface again after the title run. And yeah, no, just absolutely everything about this match sings. It is beautiful. Um, you know, I, I, uh, the cage match guys weighted the tag, the, the junior heavyweight match better than this one. And I, I would, I would not disagree because I think the junior heavyweight match was probably one of those style and genre defining matches whereas mm. the tag team championship match wasn't it was just exceptionally high quality so i think that's one of the reasons why it got more i would think but yes it is, it is a question i know i'm going to come back to that in the main event because that or well, not the main event the semi-final but let's just move on this is for the next match was for the ghc heavyweight championship yes this is the fourth match from the end and the ghc heavyweight championship is only the fourth match from the end. That's how big the other three matches were on this particular card. Um, it pitted the then GHC heavyweight champion, Takeshi Rikio, against the then IWGP heavyweight champion, Hiroshi Tanahashi. That guy. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the fourth match from the end. Um, you know, it, this beggar's belief, well, that's how big the other three matches are going to be. Um, because it involved some big names and perhaps the biggest clash available in professional wrestling at the time. Uh, Takeshi Ryukyo was the guy that unseated Kenta Kibashi after his epic two-year global honor crown reign that was really the crowning achievement of Noah creatively. Um, and they tr did it the right way. They tried to bring on a younger star. Ryukyo was very popular and he was over with the fans, but again, had to retire early and probably doesn't get as much... Um, props from the fans and the historians because it was a bit of a shooting star career rather than the long haul that, say, Kawada had. So 
he also was kind of restrictive in style. I want to say he was terrible. He was good at what he did. But what he did doesn't necessarily gel with what Hiroshi Tanahashi does. And I'm not being funny. Tanahashi is a large gentleman, but he looked a bit dropped off next to Ricky. <laughs> yeah, Ricky um, was like fighting a bull. Yes. <laughs> He's just big. Dude's huge. He's well-muscled. Um, put together, as uh, Jim Ross would say. And Tanahashi just kind of like tried to maul him around for 17 minutes. You, you know Tanahashi isn't going to win. He's in he's in Noah's backyard. He's also massively unpopular because he's in Noah's backyard and he is the living embodiment of uh, Strong Style, so it ain't going to go well for him, let's put it that way. And to his credit, he hadn't got to the full-on, oh, best be a heel point of his career, and he tried to soldier on as a babyface. And he put in a game performance, but he won't win in. And it was kind of written on his face. And that's one thing about Tanahashi when he is losing big, then you know he's, then he's, you can tell. <laughs> Especially at this particular point in his career when he hadn't learned to hide it so well. But yeah, this was I just good. I kind of knew it when I saw Tanahashi come out and then I was just, I looked at his opponent and I was like, this looks like Tanahashi's going to get run over by a car. Yeah. Uh-huh. See, that's the thing. And because it was like, this is the booking you were talking about last week when we were talking about Forbidden Door. This did make New Japan look bad. <laughs> but sometimes that just can't be helped. It's like you step into someone's back garden with the polar opposite style and you're just undersized, which is something I never thought I'd say about Tanahashi. <laughs> but just go and watch this match and tell me otherwise. And yeah. it can happen. Like, who cares? You, you walked into the backyard and you lost chances are they could have done the same thing in the opposite situation and lost and it would just people would get on with it i think i think it's sorry to interrupt but i think it's less of an issue with this because it's one match you couldn't do a whole card like this it wouldn't work someone would have a fit politically speaking the thing i was always getting at was like you could do big matches and still have it be an even keel of wins to losses like, yeah. so that nobody looks terrible. It's just, like, this fit, because it would be like watching Ogawa go against Ishii. Like, yeah. if you wanted to put a comparison into how Rikio looked compared to Tanahashi. <laughs> Ogawa like, now, not Ogawa then. <laughs> it's, it's still just sort of like... How did you expect it was going to go? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of them do's really. Um, but it was thus as I say, it wasn't bad. It wasn't terrible. Oh, no, it's, um, it's Tanahashi. He always pulls yeah. it out. And considering this was my first real instance of seeing Ricky Orr at his peak, he looked brilliant at what he was doing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was limited in what he could do because he wasn't particularly long in the business. How long have you been in the business at this point? 2005. He'll have been wrestling for uh, five years. And he only had another five years left before he retired. And he was trained by Masao Rankibashi. So he had a pretty good training career, really, didn't he? So, yeah, so that was that, really. Um, And it was fine. Did what it said on the tin. It was, you know, which uh, sounds really harsh for an IWGP champion challenging for the GHC heavyweight championship but it is what it is <laughs> you've got to realize that it came after two back-to-back mammoth matches yeah absolutely <laughs> and you were still had three of the biggest matches in professional wrestling to go as well you know the it next up dealer's wheel it was stuck in the middle indeed Jenichiro Tenru the living legend of King's Road was going to wrestle Yoshinara Ogawa. Now, we today, we think of Yoshinara Ogawa as junior heavyweight ace, which he is, but he has slimmed down since the mid-2000s, where he basically developed a, a turn of uh, size and became this uh, very over-heavyweight, uh, despite really being in a junior heavyweight-sized body. Um, so when it came to putting dream matches together, they had to think about Ogawa because he'd gotten himself over so quickly. Um, and now he's slimmed down again and sticks to the junior heavyweights and is kind of the patriarch of the junior heavyweight division. 
and is very, very popular still, obviously leader of Stinger and your current GHC junior heavyweight champion, um, who was taking an exception to Jushin Thunder Liger the other day because of Liger having a crack at the junior heavyweights in Noah saying that they weren't very good. Um, Liger's been saying that for many years and has had his ass handed to him on quite a few occasions for saying it. I don't think he's going to come out of retirement, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Tenru and Agawa was a bit of a dream match at this particular time, and certainly the fans were excited. It only went for 10 minutes and 27 seconds, and Agawa got a bit of an ass-whooping in this particular match. But it didn't do him any harm, because he stood up to the legend, and he made the legend stand back a step or two. And that was all he needed to do to make his career go further. What's your thoughts on this one, John? Yeah, as, as you said, as dream matches go, seeing... Like peak baby first run or Gawa getting the shit hand beaten out of him by Genichiro Tenaru. Is <laughs> there's nothing to complain at there. You know what you're going to see and you get to see it. Yeah, absolutely. It was perfectly fine. It wasn't like, you know, Tenaru was well, five years before he'd have the absolute blinder with Keiji Muto for the triple crown. And that was probably his last truly great performance. So he was on the slide, let's be honest, at this particular point. And he wasn't the star he'd been in the 90s for sure. You know, he'd basically gone and saved New Japan for a while in the late 90s when they got stuck. And then he'd gone on to All Japan and saved All Japan again. Um, and now he was trying his hand in Noah, but he didn't have too many matches in Noah. He still had his own company. Genitura Project was still, um, you know, finding people like Tomohiro Ishii, for example. So it would become, you become more of a, a backstage handler and a promoter. And that was really great for the future of professional wrestling in Japan. And we're very, very thankful for him doing that. But this match was more about him still being legend and Nagawa getting a little bit of rub, even if it didn't work out well for him yet. And then, speaking of which, <laughs> dream matches. Kensuke Sakata, <laughs> Kenta Kibashi, let's start there. Defeated Gensuke Sasaki in 23 minutes and 38 seconds of a wonderful professional wrestling match. Sasaki was a legend in the 90s from New Japan Pro Wrestling, who around about the time of the three musketeers leaving the company, or at least moving on from each other, Sasaki also stepped out on his own. And he went to Noah. He started his own company, Gensuke Sasaki Promotions. He started his own development territory, which gave us people like Nakajima. And went on to be an individual star that worked for many different companies, but kind of settled in Noah and ended up with a Global Donor crown run. And this was a match that really cemented his legacy within the company. Kabashi was Kenta Kabashi. He was the hottest wrestler in the world. He'd just come off the GHC championship run, which was arguably the best championship run anyone ever had. Um, and he was pulling five-star matches out with broomsticks. And there was nothing he could do wrong in this particular time period. He was starting to show some signs of wear. It took him a good two or three minutes to get going into this particular match. But when he got going, by God, did he get going. And this was just thunderous professional wrestling. It kind of summed up everything that was right about Noah in their style. A King's Road wrestler needed to be tough and a King's Road wrestler needed to tell a story. And Sasaki wasn't a King's Road wrestler, but he adapted his strong style background in a way very much reminiscent of his wife, Akira Hokuto, when she went to Gaia and redeveloped her style in, in a much more straight-ahead way. And this was just sublime. Just perfect wrestling from perfect wrestlers. Just, you know, that was what Kobashi was known as by the fans because he could go with a junior heavyweight or he could handle a monster like Stan Hansen and they would be outstanding matches no matter what he did and he was still pulling outstanding matches out what 17 years into his career of this particular standard and Sasaki was no slouch it takes two to be this good and this was just perfection really really great wrestling what's your thoughts on this one John I don't know if I can add anything after that like, <laughs> perfectly summed it up like this match kicked every type of ass imaginable it was so damn good because of the people in it like Kenta Kabashi is probably going to go down as the greatest wrestler ever with a lot of people because of everything he was able to do. And yet here, he's, as you said, he's starting to break down a bit, but you'd never guess it. He's still there chopping the shit out of people 
flipping with people. He's doing everything he can to make Sasaki look like the million-dollar opponent that he's been billed as. And as I said, Sasaki doesn't particularly need help with that, but both pieces just play their parts perfectly, and it's a great match, and you can't look away from it. (laughs) No, you absolutely can't. It just is compelling. You have to watch this match. There's just everything draws your eye to it, just from the way Kabashi walks to the ring. You know, I, someone argued to me that oh, it was Walter from Pro Wrestling Illustrated that Hiroshi Tanahashi was the perfect babyface and like the best babyface wrestler ever. And I'm like, nah, Kabashi is the best babyface wrestler ever. Never turned heel, always a pure white meat babyface wherever he went. And he was just outstanding at whatever he did and was pure babyface. I you think know, it would be he didn't... impossible to hate Kent Kabashi. Yeah. He liked my tweet this week. Who, <laughs> Kent Kabashi? Kent Kabashi did, yes. Because um, it's uh, Fortune K coming up. He annually puts the show together. He books his own show. Um, and he calls it Fortune K. I think it's Fortune K8. Every year he does his own show. And obviously he hasn't for a couple of years. And... One Minoru Suzuki uh, posted a video this week to say he'd be at Fortune K. And he did it brilliantly because he was just like, it just looks like a regular, like a reel or a TikTok. It's just going around Tokyo Harbor. And then the camera turns around and it's Minoru Suzuki. <laughs> <laughs> and I quote tweeted it and said, wait till the end, wait for it. <laughs> and Kenta Kabashi liked my tweet. I thought that was cool. But yes, there you go. So he's a very nice man. And you can't say anything wrong about it. He's a great just had... commentary when he appears. He is, yeah. You can tell he loves wrestling. That's the key thing. He loves wrestling of all forms. He loves Joshi. He loves wrestling. He loves hardcore. He does everything. You know, he just he just loves wrestling. You know, he was great friends with Hayabusa. He was great friends with John Cassai and all the Deathmatch guys. He just likes wrestling. You know, he when he books his shit. I... You see the uh, fallout from Takataichi Mania? No, I did not. What so, happened there, sir? It was Kasai and shit. It was Kasai. It was a tag. I match. know. I saw pictures of. Yeah. It was Kasai and a partner. I can't remember because my brain's gone to sleep. Versus Desperado and Dorky. It was like proper hardcore tag match. And I know that Doki and Desperado ended up bleeding a lot. Well, there's the um, massive gif going around of like the reverse Tiger Driver off the top on Doki through a chair platform. <laughs> Just <laughs> sheer carnage, Kasai killed him. And at the end of that, um, Kasai basically handed, well, pointed a rose at Desperado and was like, if you ex I want to fight you, no more ducking around. It's been however many years. If you accept this rose, I'll take it as a yes. And of course, yeah. Desperado accepted the rose. So huh. at some well, point yeah. we get his high Desperado too. I was Hopefully wondering if that jaw dropping performance. I'm guessing that's one of the reasons why he dropped the IWGP junior heavyweight championship so he could go wrap up some business. Maybe. I'm just wondering where that would be. Because, like, Kasai's home turf is, like, Freedom's... Would um, I don't nec- doesn't doesn't necessarily have to be a death match. It's probably Taichi Mania, Takataichi Mania, I would think. So, because that's where all that stuff's gone down, hasn't it? And it's really? it's a netherworld. It's a netherworld that only Taichi and, and Taka know what's going on. <laughs> all I know is if, if there's a second... To be fair, it probably will be another hardcore match, just based on how the first one went. Because it was, despite Desperado's unfortunate injury, it was still an incredible hardcore bout. Well, I guess we'll see. We'll see what happens. Let's just wrap up this event, though, because there was still one more match to go. And that one more match was the biggest match in professional wrestling at the time. Masura Misawa to wrestle Toshiaki Kawada one more time. In the Tokyo Dome, in the main event, in front of 62,000 people, the two lifelong rivals and former tag team partners who had finished runners up in the World Tag League in 1992, strongest determination World Tag League, I should give it its proper name, that myself and 
Alex Edwards recovered right at the very beginning of the Beginner's Guide to Japanese Wrestling. Some 13 years later, they meet again after Misawa had led the Exodus out of No Door Japan and left Kawada to look after the company that they'd founded their careers. There was words to be said, there was bad blood, there was politics, and there was the opportunity to make a lot of money. And that usually is the biggest determining factor in professional wrestling. <laughs> Still to this day. So they buried their differences, they sorted out the match, and they booked it for the Tokyo Dome. Why wouldn't you? Arguably the two greatest workers of Japanese history, the guys that had the most monumental matches, the guys who defined what Japanese professional wrestling is about for the last 15 years, they go out and have one more match. Now, I'm not saying it was as good as their old Japan matches in the 90s that essentially laid out what King's Road would be. I don't think it was, but it was a different kind of match because both guys were different kinds of wrestlers at this point in their careers, and it boiled down to who could hit hardest. And it boiled down to strikes. And the striking of Masawa was what won out in the end. He won this match with an elbow. The simplest, purest form of professional wrestling maneuvers. He hit him in the face as hard as he could. And that's and what won the match. 50 elbows before. Because <laughs> <laughs> Kawada went I didn't say zombie mode and just kept getting I didn't up. Say, yeah. I didn't say he did it more than once. I'm just saying that was it. It was it was as basic as professional wrestling could be for two guys of this caliber. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It was a guttural experience of just sheer desperation and bravado, as opposed to the classical chess matches that they'd had in the nineties. What's your thoughts on this? See, I don't have the benefit of some of the other matches you've seen. So going into this one, it's like. I really enjoyed it. Like, it was, as you said, it sort of started off with them beating the shit out of each other and just got so, like, desperate and diehard and just, I am not going down, fuck you, until eventually that last elbow just kind of knocks Kawada down. <laughs> There's so much in this, though, because it starts off rough and just gets rougher. Like, this isn't a fight that stays in the ring. They're taking bumps on concrete and just... It's every bit that a sort of final showdown between two... I want to say frenemies, but, like, I don't know. They might just genuinely hate each other from the way they treated each other. It it felt like the perfect way to cap off this show because it was just another absolute torturous slugfest. It was. It was. It was a grind to watch. It's not. It's very, 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 very good. I don't think it's as good as their night stuff. Um, oh, I can't remember. IVP Video used to do a box set of Kawada versus um, Masawa matches. It's like the story of the Triple Crown and mm-hmm. all of the Masawa works. It's a nine-disc box set. I think I know some they of wrestled the box set actually. Yeah. They've, they've wrestled each other that many times. It takes nine DVDs to fill it. And they were all like, you know. Yeah. You could tell by, like, from this match that they yeah. were incredibly familiar. Yeah. And it's just, it, there's so much history going on. It's, it's, also, it's, it's also the point, how do you match those expectations? You can't because you've wrestled other people for five or six years not really you know every how can they be as good as they were then <laughs> they just can't because they both wrestled the roughest wrestling style possible and you know at this point Masao was on 80 fags a day he was not living a healthy lifestyle to try and keep up the stress of running nowhere um and it, it's it's understandable that it wasn't as like you know like you said it's pretty hard hitting this this would they calm down at this point <laughs> compared to their previous matches. You know, this was so it was never gonna it was never gonna be that because they're different people, so they should tell a different story. And really, ideally, I think that's the thing that you can learn from this is you don't have to tell the same story that you did ten years ago. Does that make sense? Variety is the spice of life. Well, yes, and that's it. Boys, it's as spicy as possible. <laughs> 
true, but the but also you don't have to have the same flavors every week. I mean, my dad used to tell me a story about Cyril Mann and um, that royal. And Cyril Mann was king of Doncaster. You know, he was the draw. He wrestled there, like, for years. And was never a big star on TV or anything, but he was superb middleweight. And he wrestled Burt Royal every week for six months. And they sold out Doncaster Drill all every time. And it ended in a draw four weeks in a row. <laughs> but they were back next week to go see him go at it again and you can do that but you have to be exceptional professional wrestlers to be able to do it and Burt Royal was arguably one of the best ever and so was Cyril Mann but you know it's the it's the, the this style of wrestling is a very different tale to world of sport where everyone had to go to work on Monday morning you know no one's out to like hurt each other these guys didn't care if they broke a jaw it was just part of what you did that was the thing. That's the difference, isn't it? You know, it's like, whereas, you know, 10 years later, they have a match that is still exceptionally compelling and exceptionally watchable. Um, but it, they've already done the things that they said they need to do. So they have to tell a different story. And this story was just, I think, really, really well told. I don't think it was as good as Kibashi and Sasaki. And I don't think it was as good as the tag match or even the junior heavyweight match. And I would, they were, they were all better. But this was still the right match to finish the show. And, it's difficult when you've got everybody else trying to steal the show underneath you as well, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. But yeah, so what's your thoughts overall on this card, John? Um, well, it was fucking sick. <laughs> like you said, <laughs> oh, we're going to watch some old Noah. And I was like, oh, cool. It's always nice to get into like classic. I didn't expect you to pick a bloody super card. Like this... Just the name value alone should be enough to entice a lot of people. But the match quality, holy shit, the bloody match quality. <laughs> it's See, this so is the... damn good. The thing is, a lot of these shows, well, this one was shown was owned by Nippon TV and Giora Plus. And a lot of the shows of this particular time period were either owned by Nippon TV or Giora Plus. And as a result of that, they've been taken down off YouTube because a single entity can sue because Gaora TV had money in Noah and Nippon TV had money in all Japan pro wrestling. I oh, know it was the other way around. Sorry. I do apologize. Nippon TV had money in AJPW and then they sold their stock to put money into Noah and then Gaora TV put money into AJPW and they were the two companies that carried the, the, the TV shows for them. So because they're still around, both of those channels are still around and can still sue you. <laughs> and to be fair to AJPW, the the, the old um, Nippon TV shows are being rebroadcast on YouTube, which is nice. You can go find them now. We should have a look at some of them. There'll be some more about, I'm sure. Um, but yeah. But yeah, no, I think this was an excellent show. And I think it was an excellent kind of showcase as well. You also have to bear in mind, this is July 2005. And at this point, New Japan's not drawing squat uh, as far as money is concerned. Um, AJPW's doing all right. Noah's doing all right. Uh, AJPW, the women's promotion, is about to go out of business. Um, Gaia is about to go out of business. Uh, Joshi is essentially just not drawing money at all. You're at the start of a massive recession. And they put 62,000 people in the Tokyo Dome. That's a remarkable thing to do. Absolutely remarkable. And they were the biggest company in wrestling at the time. Easily. You know, New Japan, I don't know what wrestle, what was the January the 4th? New Japan, 2005, Tokyo Dome. I'm not sure what card that was. But January 4th, Tokyo Dome show in 2005 was... Oh, do, 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 do. Uh, was Tokyo Festival Wrestling World, and they put 46,000. And that's the official figure into the Tokyo Dome. And it was realistically 36,000 because they used to pay for things. And that was for Shinsuke, that was Shinsuke Nakamura versus Hiroshi Tanahashi for the IWGP U30 Heavyweight Championship. 
So there you go. <laughs> Hiroshi Tanahashi and Shinsuke Nakamura couldn't sell out the Tokyo Dome in 2005. Um, but, you know, Misawa and Kobashi certainly could. And they did. So there we go. And that's covered another episode of The Beginner's Guide to Professional Wrestling in Japan. Thank you very much for listening to the show. I'd like to thank my guest, Mr. John Dinsdale. Thank you very much, sir. It's always a pleasure, especially when you've got me watching good stuff. <laughs> uh, where can we find you on the internet, sir? You can find me at Twitter handle John Deathman, not just John Death Dam. That's my evil doppelganger who will just send you inverted pictures of cats, which are never fun. And yeah, that will lead you to my writings, my ramblings, my opinions, the odd bit of opinion trashing the game Dead by Daylight, despite the fact that I still play it routinely. Uh, yeah, and obviously keep a check to Steel Chair, where me and Mr. True Penny both write for. Yes, you can. I have an interview with Brian Solomon, uh, the has written a new book about the original Sheik. Which, if you like deathmatch wrestling, which I know John does, will be an intriguing review from one of the originators of the deathmatch style. You can find me, James Troopany, at Sheriff Star on Twitter. You can find the show Troopany Show on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook, The Troopany Show, and on iTunes. Not on iTunes. We're on iTunes. You can find us wherever you find good podcasts. But you can find us on Patreon and keep The Troopany Show free forever for everyone. For those of you who are interested, I've just been looking up the following year at the Tokyo Dome in 2006, Brock Lesnar wrestled Shinsuke Nakamura for the IWGP Heavyweight Championship and only drew 31,000 fans. That will tell you how big a gay a deal Kobashi versus Kawada was. Just to round off the conversation. Take care and we'll see you next week. Bye.